morning. It is good to be with you all and to have the privilege of sharing in God's word with you and bringing God's word to you. And so as we come to hear from our Lord, let's bow and ask him to speak to us. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that as we open up your word to hear from you, God, that you would indeed speak to us. Father, that you would speak through me. Give me the right words to say. Help me to divide your word correctly and so honor you. And help us, Lord, that we would receive the word now with meekness. Father, that it would sprout up in us and bear abundant fruit. And we pray, Lord, not for our name's sake, but Lord, we pray for yours. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, we all make decisions for our life in some way. If you want to know what movie to go watch, you'll maybe go check out Rotten Tomatoes to sort of get an evaluation of a certain film. If you want to know about the new restaurant that's in town here in Charlotte, you'll likely find yourself on Yelp and finding what people have reviewed and said about it. Or to figure out on what to think about a certain uh, news incident or event that's taken place or or even a political candidate. You listen to debates or you go to news outlets and sources in order to make a decision to judge and evaluate properly. Well, preachers get judged too. Some preachers today preach good news, true news, the right news. But not all preachers preach what's true. Well, preachers get judged today, but this was also the case in Jesus' day. In, in the days of Jesus' ministry, even he was judged by his hearers. Many of his listeners seemed to sort of be feeling this separation, this distance or, or dissonance between what was expected when the Messiah came and what was actually happening when Jesus came. You see, when Jesus came and began his ministry, there were certain expectations of what would occur when the Messiah himself came. There were common ideas floating around of what the Messiah's coming would be like, and basic to all of those ideas was a reconstitution of Israel's prosperity. And, and in particular, they're regaining political independence. Now, was Jesus going to do this? That was the question that many of his listeners were asking themselves. Is Jesus indeed going to fulfill many of these expectations? come and fulfill all the expectations that they had of the coming Messiah. 
And Jesus himself was aware of that question. And what Jesus sought to do and to help his people in was to understand that while not every expectation of the kingdom's coming was, was all wrong, he sought to help them understand that he himself would have two comings. Jesus himself would come first to save. And then later he would come again to judge. And that's what Jesus offers to us, even I think as we read in the passage today of what's going on in the book of Matthew. So we will be in Matthew chapter 13 together this morning. I'd encourage you to go ahead and pull out a few Bible in front of you or if you brought your own Bible and open up to Matthew chapter 13. You see in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew himself, he's writing with an agenda and he wants us to know very clearly that Jesus himself is the Messiah King who was promised. He's the one who's come to usher in his kingdom and will continue to usher in his kingdom. To get you up to speed on where we are, we, we see in Matthew chapter 1, we sort of see the king's qualifications. We see the lineage of where Jesus came from. He comes from the line of David and has the right to establish his throne. And in chapters 2 through 4, we see the, the sort of introduction of the king himself, the advent or arrival of this king. But then we see in chapters 5 through 10 sort of the king's agenda, if you will. Chapters 5 through 7 in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, we sort of hear the king's authoritative words to his disciples. And then backed up in the following chapters, 8 through 9, his authenticating way. Miracles, acts of mercy, demonstrations of power. And all seems well and good all the way up until chapters 11 and 12, where there we see Jesus beginning to encounter opposition. Opposition and questions, even from the good guys. John the Baptist himself is wondering, are you indeed the Messiah? And this questioning starts to happen. And then you have from the religious leaders this outright rejection of who Jesus was. They're saying that Jesus does his miracles by the power of the prince of demons. And Jesus himself responds to this rejection in a particular way. Jesus begins to speak in parables in response to the rejection that he receives. He begins speaking in parables sort of with this purpose to, to both conceal truth from those who are hard of heart, but also to reveal truth to those who are receptive to his ministry. Pastor Jonathan preached on the first parable back in September. I'd encourage you, if you weren't there for that message, go back and listen to that message on the podcast. And that was where he walked through the parable of the sower who goes out and sows seeds. What's well, in that section of parables that we find ourselves this morning. And we're picking up on the heels of the parable of the sower, and now 
Jesus gives to us a second parable. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. But let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, although this scenario, as we hear the story, may seem sort of odd to our ears, Jesus is actually describing something that happened in the ancient world quite often. It it was the idea that that someone who would be your enemy would come and sow seeds of weeds on top of crops that you had already planted. It was sort of this kind of agricultural sabotage. And, And we know that this happened because there are, in fact, Roman laws that dealt specifically with the crime of sowing bad weeds in your neighbor's soil as an act of revenge. Now, if you think about this very long, we might not notice the major implications of this. I mean, this really was was worse than going and just simply stealing somebody's money because it didn't just have financial ramifications for an individual, but it also affected one's ability to provide and put food on the table for their own family. And so it was a, 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 a massive act of sabotage and attack to do this to somebody's field. You know, in the great state of Texas where I'm from, there were laws against cutting people's barbed wire fences and letting their cattle loose. So it was something that was common back in the day, or going and stealing a man's horse. This is something similar of what's going on here. So what Jesus is describing is it's not only a realistic scenario for his audience, but, but it's a familiar one. And if we dig a little bit deeper, we read about this weed, and, and the weeds spoken of here, most commentators actually believe it was a specific weed itself. It's called Darnell. You, you might even see that as a footnote in your Bible. Some translations would have that as a footnote. And what's interesting, especially about this weed, is that it looks like wheat, especially in its beginning stages. It, it would have the same color, it would sprout the same way, But it was really only at its maturity that you could tell the difference 
between the darnel and the wheat. Because the wheat the, itself would, would have these sort of heads of grain that would come up, but the darnel would look different. So Jesus is right here to assume that the farmer himself would, would actually wait until it all grows in order to harvest and separate the two. But the question that we have this morning as we come to this is, other than the fact that Jesus was sort of up to speed on the agricultural practices of the day, what do we actually learn from this parable? Right? What, what is Jesus teaching us? Obviously, this story would have been familiar with the people. It's a realistic situation. But what's the point that Jesus is trying to make? I mean, if, if you would imagine this situation, I would just come up to a group of people and say, you know, when you're sort of standing in checkout line and you're in a hurry at the grocery store and you've only got a few items and there's people in front of you, but you've picked the shortest line and then you look over and you see the longest line is actually moving a lot faster than what you wanted to be in and you see the people who had actually been behind you and they go through. And then everybody would be wondering, rightly, well, what's the point? What are you trying to tell us? So this probably would have been confusing to many in Jesus' audience. I mean, especially if you remember a few chapters earlier, chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching very clearly. He has these authoritative words, and, and people marvel at his very teaching. But now he just drops a farmer story on him, and he goes off with his disciples. Well, thankfully, we have some help this morning. Because what we have first is Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven is like this. Okay, so, so he helps us to know that he wants us to learn something about the kingdom of heaven. And if we think on this parable long enough, and with the images that are given and associated, then I think we can take away at least this idea. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is going to grow in a hidden an unexpected way. The kingdom of heaven is going to grow in a hidden and unexpected way. So the main idea is that true Christians in this age will continue in patience and obscurity. True Christians in this age will continue in patience and obscurity. Now, how do I know that? How, how can we sort of boil that down? Well, Secondly, we also have the advantage of Jesus himself giving the explanation of the parable. So let's look on further to verse 36 as he explains this parable to his disciples. Then Jesus left the crowds and he went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And so Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. 
the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we see a couple of things going on here in Jesus's explanation. Number one, see how it's the disciples who come to him and are eager to learn more. He's withdrawn again from the crowds after delivering this parable, and now it's his disciples who come to him and ask for an explanation. The crowds, those who are hard of heart, who have rejected Jesus's ministry, are on the outside. And it's those who are receptive to his ministry who come asking for an explanation. But then secondly, we see that this parable of the wheat and the weeds, it's not just some sort of simple analogy. When we understand this properly, it's a picture of the end of the world. It's a picture of the end of the world. And so it brings with it a great sense of urgency. It's, it's a wake-up call for people. Jesus explains the sower is the son of man, he himself who's come. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The bad seed are the sons of the evil one. And the reapers are the angels who have come to bring about that great divide. And the harvest time is the end of the age. Jesus is telling his disciples, the final age has come. I have come to establish my kingdom in the hearts of my people. I've come to scatter seed, and that seed will grow until the end of the age. And finally, and then, will I establish an entirely new order when I come to execute vengeance. I want us to have three takeaways in our time together as we unpack the rest of what does this parable mean for us? How does this shape and influence our life? How does this change the way that I live today and tomorrow and in the rest of the week? Three takeaways for us from this parable. Number one, be patient in well-doing. Be patient in well-doing. Alan Crider himself wrote a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And in his book, he sought to explain this question of how this sort of break-off Jewish sect that began just with 12 people following Jesus grew into this massive movement in over the case of just simply several centuries, just a few centuries, that, that then not only survived the Roman Empire, but eventually outgrew it and continued to grow when the Roman Empire then collapsed. And so he sought to answer in that book, how is that even possible? It seems like it's against all odds. Well, his 
answer in the book is that a big part of Christianity's ability to influence the surrounding world was because it had inculcated this culture and disposition of patience. A disposition of patience. It it was through inviting people into the life of the church and a life of teaching and worship and following Jesus and service for society and helping the poor and taking good care of women and extending mercy to orphans and those who are most vulnerable, of of sharing wealth, of nonviolent ethics. Christianity was a worldview and culture that fermented patiently. And I think this picture of Christ and his church aligns exactly with what Jesus is teaching here. How is it that the kingdom of heaven operates in this world? What's not with bravado and fanfare and making names for ourselves. It's not through self-advancement or self-protective tendencies. But instead, the kingdom of heaven operates through sacrificial love, through wisdom, kindness, and patience with one another, doing good and beautiful acts of mercy, protecting the vulnerable, caring for the poor, and inviting all to come into this life of the community of Jesus and to see and feel and know a way of life that is entirely different than the way the rest of the world operates. Jesus is telling Christians here that we are the wheat, the wheat that will mature and bear fruit, that We are the seeds that mature and turn into trees. But a culture of patience, a disposition of patience is required. Because we know at the end of the day, this is all God's doing. It's God's work. And let me tell you right now, if all you want in this world is what you can immediately see. You will not like following Jesus. That's not the way that following Jesus works. Part of what it means to follow Christ in a fallen world is that we have lives that get filled with struggle and disappointment, sorrow and suffering, and some questions that may not even be answered this side of heaven. And yes, it involves waiting and patience. Just as we've seen even in the last several weeks as we've gone through the book of Genesis. How long did Abraham himself wait for the fruition of God's promise to come to him of offspring? He waited 25 years. 25 years Abraham waited for that specific promise, and then he even died before he ever saw his offspring inherit the land. And yet, God's promise was true. He was faithful to his promise. And the promise that we ourselves cling to is that For all of God's children, he may use those difficulties. We may have those difficulties come into our life, but they don't keep us from God. 
They're actually used by God to, to press us further into him. And so we ought to be patient and have a lasting trust in him. No matter who gets elected, no matter if a virus spreads like wildfire across our country, no matter if our economy's booming or down, these are all things that we can certainly care about and work to do something about. But whatever we think, feel, and say needs to be rooted in this vision. This certainty that the kingdom of heaven is unstoppable. And it breeds in us a confident patience. A patience in well-doing. Number two. Be certain in your hope. Be certain in your hope. Growth takes time. In us and in people generally, especially significant, lasting, strong growth. You know, dandelions, those things can sprout overnight. How long does it take for an oak tree to grow? But you can't really do much with a dandelion. You sort of pick the fluffy thing up, blow it off, and then you're done. But you can build houses out of oak trees. You can build cities with oak trees. You can get the microwave burrito in about 60 seconds. But if you want a well-aged steak with asparagus, it's going to take time. It takes time. And the point is that if you are a Christian, God is at work in you. Sometimes it feels dreadfully slow. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's a frustrating process. But God is at work in you, believer. Not only outwardly, but inwardly. So my encouragement, the encouragement that I think that we draw from this passage is that we ought to be patient with ourselves, especially in a day where we're told that you can have a six pack in six minutes or you can order a meal and it comes hot to your doorstep in 20 minutes. You know, we can be thankful for technology and the things that make that possible, but work on the human heart will always remain a slow work. Transformative growth doesn't happen instantly, except for the work that God does at conversion. So certainly we see people hearing the gospel and believing and repenting of their sins, and there's a, an, an instantaneous change often that we see there. But then after that, as we continue to walk with Jesus over the years. We get older in our faith and move along and then things get filled with frustration and feelings of redundancy, setbacks, sin struggles, bad habits that we fall into and growth can often be imperceptible at that point. And it does matter. It does matter. Don't get me wrong. It matters that we pursue God that we come and give ourselves to the means that 
God has given for us to grow in grace, of gathering together regularly, weekly, of meeting with one another and encouraging one another with the word, of giving ourselves to our own study of the word and, and prayer with the Lord. But we must take the wrong view in all of it. In all of it, we must remember that there is a long-term view. And this is not only true with us in our own personal sanctification, but it's true as we walk with others, as we help one another on our journey heavenward. We ought to be patient with others, patient in our evangelism, patient with your teenagers, patient with your toddlers, patient with your spouses. Embracing God's call on your life that you are a part of what he's doing in that other person's life. They're not zapping your time from you. Your time isn't your time. Your time is God's time. And he's given you that time so that way you can use it to pour yourselves into the life of your friends and your family and your neighbors and to help God's people as they seek to follow Jesus. And that is a privilege, y'all. You know, I think the picture that we see, even of the Son of Man, he himself is the one who goes and scatters the seed. I think as we read this, we ought to take away the truth that our God himself is a happy and joyful and wise gardener. You know, when God himself plants that seed, I don't think he's coming out to the garden and yelling every day, grow seeds, grow. No, God knows. God himself knows that valuable growth takes time. And he himself is the one who works that growth effectually, but in his own time. We can have this patience when we are certain in our hope. When we understand that God himself has secured a future better than we could ever ask or imagine. When we know that he holds all things in creation together by his own hand, by the words of his power. When he, we know that he works every detail for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That certain hope, it restrains us from trying to sort of sinfully secure a future for ourselves. And it, and it postures us to fully trust God. He will give the growth. We must be certain in our hope in order to cultivate this kingdom patience. Number three, and lastly, hear the urgent call. Hear the urgent call. While we must be patient in our seeking to do good to others, in our endeavor to grow in Christ-likeness and help one another to, to grow until the end of the age, there's also another tone that's woven throughout this parable. 
there's another note, and it's a note of urgency. Jesus says, if you have ears, you better listen up. Listen up. And especially if you're not a Christian. If you're not following Jesus. If you're not a student of Jesus' teaching and seeking to follow him. There's an urgent call for you right here today. Jesus himself has a word for you today. He tells us that everyone in this parable has a father. You're either the son of the heavenly father, you're a son of the evil one, says Jesus. And when Jesus interprets this parable, he is inviting all of us to see a reality that for many of us, I think kind of makes us squirm in our seat a little bit. It makes us uncomfortable to talk about. A reality of a coming judgment that there is a dreadful fate for those who have not trusted in Christ. He speaks of eternal conscious punishment under the righteous wrath of God for an eternity. For an eternity. For those who are in Christ, there is the hope and expectation of joy. But as we hear about this great division, I hope it causes you to squirm a bit. I think, quite frankly, if we're not uncomfortable as we hear about the reality of what will take place, I think we're either clueless or heartless. But the truth of a future judgment where good and evil will be separated, it's a very clear reality of Jesus' gospel. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, in verses 41 and 42 in particular, make, they, they cause you to make you to want to pull back from the God of the Bible. Hear me out. Hear me out for just one minute. You want justice. You really do. Everything inside you calls out for wrongs to eventually be made right. It's in our very human makeup. It's part of the way that we're wired. We want evil to be punished. And that's what these verses are talking about father abuses a son. A group of people get targeted and either oppressed or killed simply because of their skin color or because they believe in God. Words get used to tear down and to destroy rather than to build up and give life. God's going to take all of that away. He will put an end to all of that, and we all want that to end. That is how God himself feels about his good and perfect creation that's corrupted in rebellion against him. It's good and right for God himself to bring 
justice, to put an end to all of the offenses that have certainly been from person to person, but how much more every sin and an affront against the king of the universe. God is coming to set the world right, and that is what we want. That is what you want. That is what we are made for. But in order for us to enjoy that moment and not shrink back in terror, when God turns his eye of judgment toward and against us, we have to be hiding behind Jesus. That is the only way to stand before the Lord God. That is the only way to stand before the maker of heaven and earth who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and who only does what is right. And Jesus himself is the answer for us to be able to stand before God. He himself, he came and he lived the life that you and I, we could never live. He lived with the patience that we needed to live with. He had the certain hope fixed on where he would be at the Father's right hand when he would endure the cross. Jesus himself came and lived that life that we could never live, and there he went to the cross and he died a death that you and I, we all deserved that death. He suffered, not just at the hands of lawless men. No, he laid his life down before the Father who poured his wrath out on his son. The judgment that you and I deserved, God the Father treated Jesus as a sinner so that he himself could be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Our sin can be paid for if you would only turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And he himself comes and he puts his robes of righteousness on you. And God himself adopts you into his family. And now, by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been given power to live a new life. To not be ruled by sin and its desires, but to indeed grow. To grow and be weak. And not have the destiny of the weeds being gathered and burned. And Jesus now comes and invites us. He says, come. Come into my kingdom. Come and find life with me. It's everything you've ever wanted. Truly, truly, it is the way of life. And so this is a gracious and a loving, and yet an urgent invitation to be part of God's kingdom. And look and see how beautiful this kingdom is as we conclude. We see that after the angels have gathered out all causes of sin and lawbreakers, then, verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That is what we're made for, y'all. We were made 
to finally be free. To finally shine, to finally radiate the image of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. To finally be like God's Son himself. And that is the life that Jesus came to bring. If you have ears to hear, even today, you will experience this joy that you and I, we are longing for. You can have a taste of it now. It's a down payment now for the great, full, and final reckoning that will come. And so as we conclude, we will observe the Lord's Supper here soon. And at the table, we remember the death of Christ. The death of Christ where Jesus himself purchased our redemption. He purchased our adoption. He purchased our joy and passage into this kingdom where we, will pro- we are promised that we will shine. But we also look forward patiently to that time. This meal helps us to be secured in our hope, to be patient in our well-doing, to even be sober as we consider the words of Jesus' call. And there, in the kingdom, on the last day, for all who are in Christ, our faces will shine like the sun. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.